Okay. This is a Yashir on Likuti Sichas, book 21, Chelek Chafalaf, the Sicha of Bishalach, the third Sicha. Towards the end of our parsha, actually all the way at the end, when we talk about the battle of Amalek, Rashi quotes the words that says, Videi Moshe Kabedim. So the way the battle was run was, was Moshe Rabbeinu chose, uh, delegated Yehoshua to go and choose troops. Tomorrow, I'm going to go up on the mountain, said Moshe, and Moshe went up the next day on the mountain. The troops went out to battle. Moshe held his hands up. And when he held his hands up, they were winning the battle. He put his hands down. They started losing the battle. Moshe's hands were getting heavy. So he took Aharon and Chor. Aharon and Chor supported his hands so he can keep them up. The Mishnah says, we're going to refer to it, but that's not the actual topic here. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah says, Is the hands of Moshe, are they making... Does the hands of Moshe make the war? Or break the war? In other words, if Moshe Rabbeinu's hands are up, the war is being won. Moshe Rabbeinu's hands are down. The war is... What is that? What's that got to do with the warriors? The warriors are fighting. Ella, but the mission there says to tell you that um, when the Bnei Yisrael would look at the hands of Moshe and the hands would be facing up, they would be focused on Hashem. When the fighters focused on Hashem, then Hashem gave them the power. They were they realized they're fighting with Hashem's power. They were closer to Hashem. They were victorious. When Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were down, they weren't focused on Hashem. They were focused more on their own power. Then they didn't have success in battle. But that's in the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah. Here, what we're focusing on is the fact that it says Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were heavy. Rashi quotes on that. We're still in the first paragraph. This was just background. The first paragraph, we say, Rashi explains, why were Moshe's hands heavy? Because he was lazy in the mitzvah. And he had appointed somebody else to lead the battle in his stead. In this case, his main student, Joshua. His hands became heavy. In other words, telling us that really he's looked at as being... Um, kind of uh, uh, absent from what he should have been present. He should have been leading the battle. The fact that he was absent, he had a heaviness in the hand, and when he had been doing his mission that he had to do to keep his hands up, he wasn't able to do effectively without the help of Aaron Kuru, propped up his hands. So simply speaking, the explanation here is that Rashi wants to explain to us that even though it says Moshe's hands were heavy, it may, you may think that this was a physical ailment that he now started to have. As they say, when people get older, sometimes they say a new normal. So Rashi says, no, this wasn't a new normal for Moshe. He was 80 years old, but it was just that right now, this was because he had been, he had been lazy, literally, in doing the mitzvah himself. So his hands, um, his, he had some kind of a, a form of punishment and his hands became not as strong as they were before. Okay. We have to understand, however. No. When we have a similar critique of Moshe in the book of Shemais, where it says that he didn't circumcise his son, Eliezer, it says he was in the way from his father-in-law, Yitro, to the going into Egypt to start the redemption process. And he was, Baderich, in the way, Bamalon, he was in a lodging place. 
And there came an angel by Bakesh Amiton. He wanted to kill him. An angel of God wanted to kill him. Why? Rashi explains. He wanted to kill Moshe because he didn't circumcise Eliezer, his son. And because Nitrashel, because he had been literally, um, how does he translate Nitrashel? Um, remiss. Because he had been remiss in circumcising his son Eliezer, he was punished with the death penalty, which his wife managed to uh, um, rescind because she quickly did a bris. So Rabbi Yossi says, no, God forbid. And Rashi brings the simple meaning, in other words, that he was going to die. Then Rabbi Yossi, then he brings the teaching of Rabbi Yossi. He says, God forbid, chas v'shalom. He wasn't remiss. Moshe could be remiss in such a basic thing. Ella, but he said, look, Hashem said, I got to go save the Jews. If I do, I just had a baby boy. If I do a circumcision, I need to wait three days for him to heal. I can't travel. It's going to put him in danger of, of, of death if I travel within three days. So I can't do that. So what should I do? God told me, God knew I'm going to have a baby boy. He knew I needed to do a circumcision. Yet he told me, go to Egypt to, to, to save the people. I'm going to go to Egypt without waiting to circumcise my child. Where was the problem? The problem was, as Rashi says there, is that... Um, when he got to the lodging place, when he got to the hotel, he first went to check in and set up his room before immediately upon arrival, just doing the circumcision. That was, that was the slight, in other words, uh, uh, mis, uh, uh, mistaken huh? delay. But that was a, that was that was a very slight mistake. Not God forbid, he you know he neglected to do a, a bris. So the question is. Here, Rashi doesn't offer a more um, complementary interpretation of what it means that Moshe didn't didn't do the battle. It just says he um, was lazy, didn't go himself, and therefore his hands are heavy. Now, next paragraph. Really, even according to the in that Rashi. Um, <clears throat> Even in the first interpretation where we say that, yes, he was remiss in not circumcising his son, what do you think the lesson Moshe took from that experience was? You can be, you can understand that if Moshe saw he was remiss in that mitzvah and then he was almost lost his life, you can understand that one of the things he put into the top of his agenda was whenever a mitzvah comes, you better be careful to do as Hashem says without delaying, without being remiss. So why here are we so quick and Rashi only gives one interpretation about his hands being heavy, saying that he was remiss or he was lazy in doing the mitzvah. Don't you think that Moshe would have taken the point from what happened last time and now he would be extra scrupulous and he wouldn't have been remiss in going and leading the battle himself? Paragraph two. So it's interesting. Rashi does give one approach, but there's other approaches as to why his hands got heavy. One approach is in the Targum Yonatan. The Targum Yonatan says it's because he delayed it to tomorrow. He should have said, we have to do battle with Amalek right now. Why delay till tomorrow? That's one reason why perhaps he's he's he, where, where he's called to task. Bait, another reason why he may be called to task is, because it says, um, who gives this reason? Um, the Pasikta, the Mechilta, other, other Midrashim say that Yakri Adav Shemashemishum the Jews had just said, Ayesh Hashem Bekirbenu, is God with us? And that's why Amalek came. Uh, the Medrash spells out the analogy that uh, imagine a father is taking a, um, a a child and protecting him and has him on his shoulders. 
Then a guy sees an enemy, and uh, and the father takes care of him, and uh, uh, somebody passes by, and the kid sitting on the father's shoulders asks the passerby, "Have you seen my dad? My dad, he just left me in the desert. Is he anywhere to be found?" The dad says, "Excuse me, I'm carrying you on my shoulders, protecting you. You don't know who I am. You know what? I'll put you down in the desert. Then you'll see what will happen." So the Jews are asking, is God with us? Right after that, Amalek comes. If after he split the sea for them, after he took him out of Egypt, after he gives them the manna, and after he brings them the quail, and after he does all this stuff, he prepares water for them. They're asking, do we have a God? God says, I'll show them. You know what? I'll take off my protective armor. Immediately, the moment Hashem takes away his protective armor from the Jewish people, there's a lot of people who want to jump on us. In this context, in this story, it was Amalek. So the Jewish people said, Ayesha, Hashem, Mekibbein, was Hashem with us. So Moshe Rabbeinu was pulled into their sin as the, their leader. The fact that they could say such a thing, the leadership always, what happens in the community always reflects on the leadership. Because even though it may not be directly related to them, but they are held responsible. It's their people. So we say that maybe his hands became... Weak because of the weakness he felt from the people that they don't trust Hashem after all this. However, the fact is that Rashi does not bring it. He doesn't even bring it as a second interpretation. <clears throat> he doesn't bring a reason that it was pushed off till the next day. That could be a reason why Moshe is punished. Um, so that doesn't make sense to say that... Um, why didn't Rashi say that the, the delay is a problem? Obviously, it doesn't make sense in the simple reading to say that the delay was a problem. Why is that? Because, um, you know, it takes time. Even simply putting together an army, and we're going to talk later a little bit, uh, when you want to respond to something that's come, you need better to, to plan and to take a little time. So that doesn't seem to be a, a chat interpretation. So we understand why Rashi doesn't bring the delay as a problem. Because obviously it's it's that 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 not necessarily a problem. However, why doesn't he bring the reason of Moshe's of Moshe's hands being weak because of the weakness of at least an, an alternate reason to Moshe being lazy? Bring a reason for Moshe's hands being heavy because the Jews were were um, were what you called were sinful. Um, especially that in our case. The fact that the Jewish people are sinful here is there in the verse. And Rashi already told us, why does Amalek come? Because the people are sinful. So if it's already in the narrative, and it's already in Rashi's reading of why this came to them, why don't you just read? And there are people that say, there is a, a medrash that says, that Moshe's hands were heavy because of the sinfulness of the Jews. Bring it at least as an alternate interpretation instead of saying that Moshe Rabbeinu was lazy. Which means to say that um, it would be therefore more appropriate to say that Moshe Rabbeinu's hands are heavy because of the sinfulness of the Jews. Why does Rashi insist on giving one reason? And that reason is not so complimentary to Moshe, saying that he was lazy about going and actually doing the mitzvah himself. So we could say, whoever proposes a, 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 a philosophy, a theory, throws in a, a in R16, he throws in a, a, a possibility, maybe they'd already done tshuva. In other words, they said, is God with us? And then Amalek came. Maybe they immediately returned to Hashem. So his hands can't be heavy anymore because they're not sinful anymore. But the Rebbe says that's not really the case because when we look at the Gemara, Rashi says, why was Moshe's hand so important? As said in the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. And I just quoted to you the Mishnah before, 
that when they looked upwards, the hands reminded them to look to God, everything was good. When they looked downwards, they weren't successful. In other words, they still were not fully bound up with Hashem. They could be, they could be uh, looking towards Hashem, but if the hands were down, so they still obviously had an aspect of sinfulness to them, and therefore it doesn't seem to be simple to say that, um, that the reason Rashi doesn't bring the Jewish people's sins as a reason why Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were heavy is because they they did Teshuvah. That doesn't seem to be a good a good uh, a good uh, uh, um, justification. No, but I want to push something off. A good um, uh, I have a I give my 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 svarov towards, and then I give a, a repelling uh, something else. Another one. A uh, counter argument, or a, when you have a debate, there's a, a rebuttal. Well, it doesn't seem thank you. Doesn't need to be a good rebuttal to it. So, in other words, the question still remains in the Rebbe's eyes: Why doesn't Rashi give an alternate as to saying that very harsh statement that Moshe Rabbeinu was lazy in this instance? Paragraph three. the The question is really even greater when we talk about Moshe in the context of being lazy because he appointed Yoshua instead of him. It's an even greater question. Why? Because let's look at Moshe's vision for how leadership should take place. His own stated vision in the portion of Pinchas, when Moshe asks Hashem that he should prepare somebody to take him over, he says, Yivkeh Hashem, Hashem should appoint Ishalo Eida, a man who should be the leader of the community, who should go out before them, says Rashi, not like kings of usual nations who sit in their palace and send out their warriors, but like I did says Moshe, a leader like me who goes out before the people when we were fighting. I was there heading the battle myself. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu understood and by him there was a very special value in being the leader, going out himself and leading the war. Not just that, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I, that's the way I did it with Sichon Enog. Even though at that time he was 120 years old. He was 119 years old. So it's very strange to understand how is it that when he's the leader 40 years earlier, he's lazy and he doesn't go to lead the battle against Amalek. That's very strange. Now, the Rebbe does not propose that maybe he learned from this that he should act differently. That just flew into my head now. I'm not sure. Let's leave it Let's leave it uh, in the background. But the Rebbe says, with this we understand that the concept, because Moshe had such a clear vision of what leadership is, it's obvious that he also understood it here as well. So what if we're saying that he was lazy by the battle of Amalek, it's no contradiction to the fact that in the that he's asking for a leader who's going to be leading the community. And he should alone be the one to go forth in battle. Because Moshe Rabbein himself acted that way. So why here doesn't he act that way? In other words, it must be that here there's 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 a particular nuance here where he doesn't act that way. He thinks one way, and that's why he doesn't act in the way he usually portrays leadership to be the one to lead. Yet here he's somehow lazy for some reason. Actually, uh, you know, these are edited talks from longer talks. Could be the Drebbe, I would have to look back to the uh, free version of what was said. In other words, when they recorded what Drebbe had said, not the edited in the source material, could be, could be there are other angles uh, um, presented. But anyway, the question I ask is not really, you know, we'll come back to the question. It's an, it's answered already, but paragraph four. So let's understand by first understanding the language of Rashi over here, where he speaks about 
we, we correlated two aspects where Rashi brings stories about Moshe and looks at him in a way that there's a critique. One is when he goes and neglects to circumcise his son Eliezer immediately. The other is when he neglects to be the leader of the battle of Amalek here. But the language uses two different languages. There, when we talk about being remiss in, in circumcising Eliezer, it says, Shanit Rachel. Shanit means he was remiss. He was a little off. I'm going to use my own language. He was a little bit off, off target. He wasn't, he wasn't spot on. Here we say he was lazy about not leading the army. What's the difference between Nitrashel and Nitatzel? They sound generally the same thing. He, he was remiss. No, the one is a general state of being. And one is a, 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 a laziness from doing something particular. In other words, Rashlanut means in the Yiddish general remissness, general not, not, being, not having alacrity, generally not being fully with the plot. Something wrong with you? You're not with it today. You're not, you're, everything you're doing, is you, 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 you kind of, no, you're, you're, not, you're not hitting spot on. You're not, you're not living up to the top level. Atzlanut is a foil kite, is a kind of a, a laziness regarding a certain activity. We can say, you know, today I see, I see you're not walking as fast as you usually walk. Everything else you look okay, but you seem to be sluggish in your movement, in your walking. Or you, you, oh, you got up late today. You, well, you didn't want to get up on time today. That would be a laziness, a particular thing. It's not a general, uh, um, so to speak, a general uh, um, irresponsibility. Bemele, in our case, when we're talking about Moshe, it's not that he was off mark in general. He wasn't. He wasn't uh, up to being up to his leadership properly. It's that in this mitzvah, when we talk about this mitzvah, there's an aspect of his relationship with this particular mitzvah of leading the battle against Amalek, where he was lazy in a sense. He didn't act. He didn't act. He didn't do a particular action which one would have expected Moshe to do. Or Shem would have expected Moshe to do when it comes to this particular battle. So it's not a general, um, um, a general irresponsibility, so to speak. It's just a particular. A, a, a laziness about one aspect where one would have expected him to be full of alacrity and do this and lead the battle. What do we mean to say? Paragraph five. And here we're going to present a very, very valid argument in terms of leadership. My Moshe Rabbeinu did what he did. And why? If you ask most leaders that lead whatever they're leading, they would probably agree with the, with Moshe's vision of leadership the way he did it. Yet he's called lazy. Why? What was Moshe's vision? Paragraph 5, the explanations. The reason Moshe didn't lead the battle himself is, according to the simple reading, it wasn't because he was irresponsible or because he was uh, not, on, not, on his, not on his game, so to speak. It wasn't even because he was lazy to go and lead this particular battle. It was a calculated decision, if you look at it naturally, why? He wanted, he felt that I'm not the guy to lead this battle in a natural way. I'm 80 years old. I'm going to be the guy to lead the battle. Now, and to and to go in front of the troops, the one that should go in front of the troops would be somebody who's the age of a troop goer. According to the terrorists, between the age of 20 and 60. How old, by the way, was Yeshua at the time of war? Yeshua was at the time of war, either 42 years old, there's two opinions, how we, how, where he is in history, or 56 or 57. 
<laughs> 56 or 50, that's a young man. He can go and do the walk. 42, for sure, I understand. But <laughs> 56, 57, you're 56. I can understand I'm 55. So you understand, I can understand at 56 years old, he could go and lead the thing. My Shemin is 80 years old. He says, I need a young man to go and do this. Now, oh, we just told you that Moshe Rabbeinu did, did um, other things all the way till being 120. He led the battle of Sichon and Og himself. So what are we saying? He didn't want to go and do battle. Well, he, 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 he doubts himself at 80, but at 119, he's up there going against the biggest giant in history. Og Melech and Og the giant. But here's, but here's the difference. The difference is that this battle of Amalek, the way Moshe perceives it, is a different kind of battle. Hashem worked with Amalek till the battle of Amalek, Hashem was leading the Jews in a supernatural way. The splitting of the sea, there, there, there's no age. At no age can you split the sea as a human. At no age can you bring ten plagues. It's not an age. That only God can do. God brings down mana. These are things that God is doing supernatural. So, obviously, when you talk about supernatural, then the whole function of Moshe is just to be somehow a, a spokespiece, a mouthpiece for Hashem. The guy that waves the... He split the sea. What did he do? He said, put your put your stick on top of the sea. Does anybody think that the stick had some kind of a nuclear power to split the sea? No, it's Hashem's supernatural that he wants just Moshe Rabbeinu to lift his stick to do something in this world that symbolizes the drawing down of God's supernatural powers to split the sea. That's when God's acts supernaturally. When they came, however, to refeed him, he gives manna from heaven. Nobody thinks that... Uh, that uh, you know that uh, that this is coming somehow from a a a a a, a smart combine that's been attached to uh, you know to 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 you know to, to to robots and it's producing food. This is from heaven, supernatural. Now, however, coming to the place called Rifidim, where the Jews asked, "Is there a God within us or not?" You know what they earned through that question. Like I told you, like the father who puts his kid down in the desert says. Okay, you don't know where I am. I'm not here anymore. You see how you deal with the desert. Hey, he puts them down. They ask, is God here? Now God leaves them, so, so to speak. He takes away their supernatural protection. And now, what has to happen? Now they have to fend for themselves. In other words, the battle of Amalek is a concealment of Hashem's imminence. a concealment of Hashem's supernatural presence. One second, if that's the case, and now Hashem's hiding his face, and now it's not a miraculous kind of behavior, and now it's a natural state that Hashem wants them to live in as a kind of a punishment, hey, who should who should do the battle? Not a 120-year-old, not an 80-year-old guy either. Now we need to get people that are of the age of battle. Now we need to do Bechar. Hashem told Moshe, Moshe told Yeshua, choose your people carefully, Right? Especially, you got to choose your captains, your generals. You got to choose your forces. Take people that are between the age of twenty and sixty. Don't take. Uh, uh, this is a natural war. Hashem has removed His miraculous protection of us because we, the Jewish people, asked, "Where's God?" Oh yeah, you're asking, "Where's God?" I'll show you. Okay, uh, you try and survive without me. However, we talk about the future battles when Moshe Ben is about to. We're at the cusp of going to Israel. The battle of Sichon and Og. So that battle was a supernatural battle. That's a battle where Hashem says openly to Moshe, do not fear. Don't fear Og. 
I've placed him in your hands. Don't worry, it's a piece of cake. You'll, you'll cream him. Nothing to worry about. Huh, you know, God says you'll cream him. And that's it. He can't have any, he can't stand up to you. So it doesn't matter how old you are. And by the way, it says about Moshe, you do know that it says about Moshe that he was, till the end of his days, he didn't lose his youthfulness. He didn't become, he didn't degenerate into being a geriatric situation. So 119 and, you know, finally he wobbles to his 120th year and he passes away. He didn't fizzle out. Moshe Rabbeinu retained his, his vibrancy. But still, you can't compare physically, naturally, the strength of a Yoshua is either 42 or 56, 57, to the strength of Moshe's 80. And he says, I, I want to do it naturally. If God wants it to be done naturally, let's do it naturally. So, what, so what's wrong? <clears throat> Before we get to what's wrong, we're going to build an even bigger case about why Moshe shouldn't be the one to lead. Again, this is, if you ask a leader in this scenario, who should lead the battle? Most people will tell you if Moshe, if I as the leader would go as an 80-year-old and lead this battle, there's some kind of, um, most people would say there's some kind of um, um, grand uh, 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 inability to let go of the reality that you're no longer 40. And you have to delegate this to the younger people. But what should Moshe's position be? Well, what would you make Moshe's position? When somebody gets, when somebody becomes old, when somebody becomes, they have experience. When he's the tzaddik, he has inspiration. You would say he should be the inspiration, not the fighter. Let's look at chapter, paragraph six. More, more so. The fact that Moshe himself didn't join into the battle is not just because he was absent, because it was a battle that needed to be done in a physical way. So you needed Yeshua as a younger man. Yeshua as a young man. And Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't have to be part of the battle. No. There's something very positive about keeping Moshe out of the fray. Because in a Melchama, in a war, you need two things. You need excuse me, the physical activity of doing the acts of war. <clears throat> and you need strong people for that. You also need the help from Hashem to do the war. Right? We all know there's a body and a soul. Even in a war. In everything. There's a physical activity, but there's this the inspiration and power and blessing from God to be able to be successful in your deeds. Because we understand even in the simple reading of the Pasuk, that even though it's a natural war, but of course it needs Hashem's input. By the way, from this we understand why it says choose people. What does Rashi say? What kind of people should you choose, Yoshua? Choose strong people and God-fearing people so that their merit should be able to assist them in being victorious. They should have spiritual merit from Hashem. In other words, even uh, though the Medrash, the Mechilta, speaks about two opposing opinions about this war. Was this war um, a natural war, a supernatural war? Regardless, even if it is a, a natural war, you still need both. You need strength, physical strength, and you need God-fearingness. You, you need God's blessing. Rashi brings together in the, in the Medrash, these are two opinions. Did he look for strong people? In other words, was it a natural war? Or did he look for God-fearing people because it was a supernatural war? Rashi brings both together. Because in the simple reading, even when you're doing a natural war, of course, everything's connected to Hashem. You need Hashem's blessings. You also need strong people, but you want pious people. 
And both of these things, Moshe Rabbeinu contributed in the in in the Battle of Amalek. On the one hand, you needed physical power, natural physical power, and that's why he said, "Yeshua, you're a young guy. You take young soldiers and go and do the battle." And you needed the prayer from the greatest person available that the Jews should be able to be victorious. Who's that? Obviously, the most appropriate person to be the prayer to pray on the Jewish people is Moshe Rabbeinu. The fact that Moshe said, choose for us people and go and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I'm going to be standing at the head of the mountain with a, the, 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 with a stick of Hashem in my hand. He's basically saying, Moshe is saying, look, this is a war where we need the, the might and we need the prayer. You go lead the might. I'm going to go lead the prayer. We're basically, what do we call it? It's a, a um, um, delegation of tasks. And that's why he said to Yeshua, you go and do battle with Amalek, and I'll go and I will pray. <clears throat> now, don't forget, he was fasting when he was sitting on top of the mountain. And we say that he was there with Moshe, and then he was there together with Aaron and Hur. The uh, Rashi brings from the Gemara that from this we learn, when you have a fast and you want to pray to Hashem on a fast day, you really need three people to be there to lead the prayers. They were in a tainus. They were fasting. And he was praying. His hands stretched to heaven was a prayer. So because of that, Moshe says, one second, I'm fasting. I'm praying. I'm at the top of the mountain with Hashem's stick, inspiring. I, that's going to give the people the power. Where else should I be? Where else should I be? And again, I repeat that if you tell this if you tell somebody in leadership today that, that an 80-year-old is insisting that he go and lead the army, they'll tell you that he's, not, not the word narcissistic is not the right word, but he's, 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 um, he's um, not able to let go and delegate what should be delegated. He, he shouldn't be. The 80-year-old should be there on the top of the mountain. It's, it's just beautiful. He's on the top of the mountain inspiring the people. <clears throat> Nobody can pray for the people to inspire the people like Moshe can. That's where Yeshua is going to be in the battle. Battle, let, let Yeshua, the young man, take, take the people that know how to, you know, fight. <clears throat> so, so, so why are we saying that Moshe did something wrong? I mean, we have a very, very, Moshe Ben had a very clear vision of what he should be doing. So paragraph seven, nonetheless, Moshe didn't even though Moshe Rabbein didn't go to the battle, and we have a very and he he understood that that's what it should be. <clears throat> he should be the one up on the mountain, fasting and, and praying and, and inspiring. Nonetheless, his hands became heavy. Rashi says the reason for that is because he was lazy in the mitzvah and he delegated it to somebody else. Why is that? Again, we gave good reasons why he delegated it because. When we talk about Hashem's instruction, Moshe Rabbeinu should not have brought any kind of cheshbonus, any kind of calculations, usual leadership calculations into the equation. He should have immediately gone out and done battle with Amalek. I have to daven. Yes, you can daven. Moshe Rabbeinu is the guy that's the most appropriate to pray. He could have taken with him the, the, the inter-battle. He could have taken the stick of Hashem. And there in the battlefield, he could have prayed a, 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 a short prayer. We already know by the splitting of the sea that when Moshe Rabbeinu is praying for the Jewish people, 
because they're in a tight situation. The Egyptians behind, the sea in front. Hashem tells him, hello, this is not a time for long prayers. Move forward. Kadima. The sea is going to split. When the Jews are suffering, that's not a time for long prayers. So go out into the battlefield, take the stick, do a short prayer. And therefore, even though Moshe Rabbeinu did have good intellectual and, 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 and logical reasons for doing what he did, <coughs> and he wasn't thinking about saving himself any effort. That wasn't what he was thinking about at all. He was thinking about how can this battle, which in my opinion, says Moshe, Hashem wants me to fight in a natural way. How can I best be part of this battle? Nonetheless, he puts somebody else. He says, I'll go and I'll pray. I'll fast. Don't forget, if you're doing battle, you may not be able to fast. You, you shouldn't be fasting if you're doing battle. The, the Yom Kippur War, could be they continued fasting, some of them, but definitely they were right away when they were told, if you if you need strength to go and do war to protect, protect you, you eat, you do whatever you have to do. Uh, we know that from Titus Esther, right? But, but that's a different discussion. So he was he was up there. Not just that, he appointed somebody instead of him. He made a shaliach. We know that appointing a messenger is like you appoint an agent. It's like you went yourself. It's not it's not some kind of a a, a second best. If you appoint the right agent, it's as if you went there yourself. So, well, what's wrong? Nonetheless, because we're talking about a commandment from Hashem. So Moshe's behavior is considered, again, in a very subtle way, and only for Moshe, it's considered as if he was lazy in a certain way compared to what was expected of him. Not that he was lazy. He was out. Imagine he was, he, he was, he was working as hard as he could up there and his hands were schlepping down and he was, he came down exhausted and then we tell him, <laughs> and then he's told he's lazy. That doesn't mean lazy like like in, an, in in that kind of way. In a very subtle way, we're saying you should have been, Hashem is giving him a sign, you should have been up there with the people because it's a mitzvah and the alacrity and the uh, preparedness to go and do the mitzvah yourself should have been there without going into the um, reasons of whether or not, the rationale of whether or not we be better for battle. <clears throat> By the way, there's a long, there's a, there's a hurry where the Rebbe says, Moshe Rabbeinu, we, we, we find him elsewhere being a little bit pulled towards intellectual reasoning. He's called to task when he asks Hashem, Lama hare ota why you sent me and nothing got better. Why have you done bad to these people? And Hashem says, I, I miss the forefathers. They were emotionally connected to me in a way where whatever I threw in their direction, they never asked me a question. Moshe Rabbeinu, you're coming with intellectual, you want to understand it intellectually. So we see already Moshe Rabbeinu does have that kind of, 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 of attitude in some way. Nonetheless, Hashem does call him to task there. Um, so why here does he still go in the path of rationalization? Because there Hashem calls him to task after he's asked. Here, Moshe Rabbeinu is actually thinking that I have a good reason to conduct myself in the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to appoint somebody in my stead. That's the way Hashem wants it probably. But no, Shem shows him through his hands being uh, heavy that no, that's not what he wanted. There's a similar, uh, there's a similar concept by the Nasim. I'm not going to go into it. But there's a, a contrasting Moshe like we did now to the forefathers. What did Abraham do when Hashem said, "Take up your only son and offer him as a, as a sacrifice"? What did he do? The, we say it every morning: "Vayashken Abraham baboker vayachavosh et chamaro." Abraham got up in the morning and he saddled his donkey himself. 
Hashem said to do it. He didn't look for any other ways. He didn't look to get his usual uh, stable man to saddle his donkey. He did it himself. Hashem says, you jump and do it. Emotional attachment to Hashem that you, you don't even let your, your, your rationale come in and dictate how you're going to do it. That's what we're expecting here of Maish Rabbeinu. Abraham, a question. Yes. Possibly the difference there where he questions is because he's on behalf of somebody else, which is my Maisha Rabbeinu also questions because it's really on behalf of somebody else. We have the Jewish people. Here, yeah, again, the Nisatzel, it's become a very subtle matter. It's not that he made a, it, it's, it's a very subtle thing. Now, but he, look at listen to something else. For that reason, um, well, what about putting? What about delaying the war till tomorrow? By the way, we said that that could be something that is a problem. But according to Rashi, that's not an issue. You know why? Because if Rashi learns that this is at the beginning, at the outset, this is a natural war. And the only reason we're calling Moshe to, to, to task is because it's a mitzvah war. But, it, but it's meant to be fought at least initially, naturally, so it makes perfect uh, sense why it had to be done tomorrow. You need time to select troops. Uh, we see this from recent occurrences. There's no immediate response. You need, you need to gather troops. You need to prepare. You need to have a strategy. You can't just react to something that, that, that you're, you're unprepared for. The Targum Yenus and the Targum that says that the delay was also a sin, they are of the general opinion, that Targum is of the opinion that this whole war was also a supernatural war. But that fits. If it's a supernatural war, then don't push it off till tomorrow. Jump right in. Hashem's doing the fighting. But Rashi learns, obviously, it's a natural war. The tomorrow is not an issue. The issue is that Rashi Abena didn't go himself because he could have still done the natural part even with going. Now, this reason... So why is his why does his hands get heavy? Get heavy? It's called midah keneged midah. He's punished measure for measure. In other words, that um, he didn't go. Um, he he didn't go himself because he felt that he wants to do it in a way that um, he wants to do it in the natural way, right? You want to do it in the natural way. It's naturally not so easy to keep your hands up all the time. You say there's a natural war. I'm going to appoint the chief of staff. I'll, yes. I'll send Yeshua. We'll do it in a natural way. Okay, natural way. Your hands will be heavy because it's, that's naturally heavy. Can't keep them up all the time. And the Rebbe gives another approach, and that is very interesting. And that is, you can look at it a little bit slightly different differently because um, why was he... Why, why did his hands get heavy? Because he went into the war with natural aspirations, Hashem said, okay, I'm going to bring you a blessing in the war. You're going to win the war, but you will have the natural limitations that you have. If he were to have gone to the war without making any calculations, Hashem would also have conducted himself with him without calculation. I have a question about uh, the natural nature of the war. If it was to be a natural nature, why was Moshe afraid? Why was oh, that's what we, we said we said before that even when we do something naturally, the prayer element is part of nature. 
even nature praying for divine intervention. Yes. There's and divine there's divine intervention and there's miraculous intervention. In other words, even regular even regular war where we're fighting with weapons and there's and there's there's a chance this side would win or this side would win and and, the, and 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 our side wins, it's not the splitting of the sea. It's it's uh, you know you can point to the natural things that happened in order for the victory to come. The more natural way, which requires prayer also. Thank you. But um, this this teaches us, by the way, an important thing, and that is sometimes the way. Um, sometimes the way um, some I'll, I'll tell you the way that Rebbe taught it once. Somebody asked, he had a loved one who passed away, and he had to say Kaddish, <laughs> the place that he was working, the city he lived in. And where he had his parnas, where he had his job, he couldn't say Kaddish for his loved one. So he asked the Rebbe, do I have to change my job to a place where I'm able to say Kaddish? I don't know if I'll find a new job. Do I have to move? The Rebbe said, no, you can pay somebody to say Kaddish on your behalf. You don't have to leave your job. But then he said, but it really depends on your level of dependence on Bashem, of bitochen, of faith in God. If you would start the other way around, you would say, I'm going to say Kaddish for my loved one. And I trust and have faith that Hashem will give me a good job nonetheless in another place. Hashem would have done that for you too. You came from the position, look, I want, Hashem tells us to live in a natural world. This is where I have my job. Must I change my job to say, God? no, you don't have to. If you would have jumped up a notch with faith. So here, if Moshe, what we say is Moshe Rabbeinu would have jumped into the fray. Faith without thinking, without trying to figure out how it works naturally. Then perhaps Hashem would have made his hands also supernaturally strong, but now that he tried to deal with it in a natural way, so Hashem also dealt with his hands. He's an 80-year-old man trying to keep his hands up all day. It doesn't, not so simple. Chet, let's add to this. Paragraph 8. By Moshe, it wasn't, God forbid, possible to make calculations when it came to fulfilling Hashem's instruction. But here, don't forget, Hashem didn't openly say Go and do battle. There's no clear, explicit instruction from Hashem here to do battle with Amalek. So therefore we could say, if Moshe Rabbeinu would have heard from Hashem, go do battle with Amalek, he would have gone himself. But here, there was no divine instruction, direct divine instruction. So what is there? Moshe Rabbeinu saw. Look, it was self-explanatory when the when, when the Goyim, the non-Jews here, Amalek in this case, were attacking the Jews you have to go and do a protective battle. This is called a self-preservation battle to protect the Jewish people. Even, even according to what it turns out, that who are the ones that, who are the ones that, um, that were able to be harmed in this battle? Only the ones that were out of the tent, out of the, out of the cloud, sorry. Later on, it says that they were all enveloped in a, in, a, in a godly cloud. There were those that had doubts in Hashem, and they were kind of ejected from the crowd, from the cloud. And those were the ones that Amalek was attacking. Nonetheless, Moshe said, we need to go, even though there's no clear instruction, we need to go and protect the people. By the way, this was Erev this was the mixed multitudes, this were the... The, the doubters in Hashem, these weren't the, 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 the core of the Jewish people that were being attacked. They were all safely in the cloud. So nonetheless, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't, didn't make any distinction between who is saving. Like we find in Egypt, when he goes out to his brothers, he doesn't look to see who he's protecting. He saw an Egyptian beat up one of his brothers and he killed the Egyptian. 
So this was the way he reacted when he saw danger against his brethren. So Moshe Rabbeinu did a self-explanatory thing. He set up an army. He says, if they're attacking my people, I've got to have a military response. However, Moshe Rabbeinu, so he didn't get an explicit instruction by Hashem, go and do battle. So that's why he didn't think he had to do it himself. He thought he'd do it the way it makes sense, militarily, according to the ways of nature. But Hashem's perspective is, if you know that this is what you have to do, that's a mitzvah to go and save your fellow brethren. So why are you not doing it yourself? It's an obvious mitzvah that you have to preserve those that are coming to fight the Jewish people. So why are you taking yourself? Um, you don't need to have a big calculation. You don't need to have, you don't need to be convinced that you have to save and, and protect your brethren. Even though Hashem didn't give an explicit command, you don't need a command for a war of preservation. You don't need Hashem to come and say explicitly. When you want to broaden the, the borders, you need to speak to the Urimatumim, you need the high priest. That, that's a a, 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 a war where you're going to expand the borders or something. Here where it's self-preservation, no instructions needed. Self-preservation is a clear mitzvah. So therefore, what we're saying is that in this battle, Moshe Rabbeinu thought one way. However, Hashem was telling him the truth of the matter is um, you really should have done that. You really should have done that yourself. What do we learn from this? <clears throat> it's a difficult thing and we'll say what we learned from this because the way we presented it Moshe Rabbeinu seemingly really did what, a, what, what leadership should be doing finding what they're good at finding where you can delegate what needs to be done by those who are more effective those who are younger those who are, would naturally be fit more the, the, the job description and leave you know some of the other things that pertain to you as an 80-year-old and as a devout uh, leader of the Jewish people, I mean, those things you should do. Not jump in front of the battle. So what are we going to learn from it? It's interesting. Because the Rebbe has been saying no. If it's Hashem saying, if you know that it's Hashem's will to self-preserve, to go and do battle, don't ask questions. Get out there and do it. So there's a great teaching um, and here, just before we get to the teaching, it's actually, we're, we're in times now not so long after Simchas Torah, right? Uh, uh, there were people that day when there was a total mayhem and nobody knew what was going on when the when the Hamas was infiltrated cities and villages and so on. The army was not organized. You had people that told said farewell to their wives and uh, older people even in the army. They knew they're going out to defend whatever they can defend. Some of them didn't come back. Many of them uh, didn't come back. And that's the kind of that's what we're saying here. Sometimes there's a there's a reaction where something needs to be done. You do it. But how do we apply this in more um, um, you know more day to day activities? Test nine. From this Rashi, there's a, a great a wondrous teaching in the service of of man. We understand that from everything in Torah, we have to have a a, a eternal. There's an eternal lesson for all times, for all places. However, when it comes to the, the battle of Amalek, there's an even more um, applicability for several reasons. First of all, there's a instruction. You have to write the story of Amalek as a remembrance in the book. In other words, it has to be a written, there needs to be a written reminder about the battle of Amalek. And anything that's written in the Torah is eternal. How much more so 
when there's, this is not just something that the Torah records, but it's something that the Torah says needs to be recorded. There's an instruction to record in writing the story of Amalek. Number two, Hashem himself says that this battle with Amalek is midor-dor from generation to generation. It's an eternal battle. To the, to, the, to, to the extent that the eternity of this battle comes into a positive commandment, which is Liz Gartami, to constantly remember the bad deeds of Amalek. And so mitzvah, according to many opinions, to remember what Amalek did every single day. We say in the six remembrances, we say after davening, we say, remember what Amalek did. From this we understand that not just the content of the war of Amalek is something eternal in the service, in our spiritual service to Hashem, also the way that the battle was fought is also has an eternal message to us. And especially in our time now, as we get closer to the footsteps of Mashiach, as it says in the Targum, Yonatan, that he translates on the words, it's a battle for Hashem in Amalek, from generation to generation. One of these generations that has to battle Amalek is the generation of the footsteps of Mashiach, the heels of Mashiach. So there's special relevance to the battle of Amalek and the way Amalek's battle was done. One of those ways it was done was Moshe Rabbeinu should have led it directly. So first, let's ask a general paragraph 10. Let's ask a general question in this topic. <clears throat> Why does Hashem tell us that Moshe's hands were heavy and that he was lazy? We have a rule that even to speak denigratingly about an animal that's not pure, the Torah will change the language and not say an animal that's tame, but say an animal that's not tahor. How much Moshe won't say something derogatory about a human if it doesn't have to? How much Moshe won't say something about Moshe Rabbeinu derogatory? He's the, the most, uh, the most uh, perfect species, most perfect kind of man of, of, of the species of human. He's the most person to reach the most perfection. Why are we saying something negative about him? Why does the Torah have to point that out? From this we understand that there must be a teaching here that we have to learn from. Explanations like this. Amalek, what did Amalek want to do? Amalek really could only affect the Jews who had allowed a certain doubt to creep into their being. As it says, that they were able to get only Vayezanev, they were able to get the tail end of the people, they were able to get the people that had wandered out of the protective cloud of glory, which means that they were as Rashi explains that to mean chaserim koach, they were lacking power, might, machmat chetam, because of their sin. And the sin caused shayah anan poltam, that the cloud of glory ejected them, couldn't tolerate them because of their sinfulness. Those are the people that are in danger. But the people that were inside, in the core of the Jewish people, in the, 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 the majority of the Jewish people, they weren't in danger at all. Amali couldn't affect them. But what are we saying? That even though it's a small minority, just the people that have been ejected from the protective cloud of glory because they wanted to be ejected, not because they 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 entertain doubts in Hashem. So this tells us the, the message here is that most of the Jewish people indeed find themselves in the tent, in the protective cloud of glory of Hashem and connected to Torah mitzvahs. And in general, connected with Hashem and each one on their level. Right? We're not saying that everybody is fully observant, but everybody's connected to Hashem in, a, in his or her way. Definitely don't see themselves as being outside the cloud of Hashem. And therefore, the cloud of Hashem, of Torah Mitzvah, protects on, 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 on the Jewish people from all kinds of winds that are blowing. 
the winds of unholiness that blow around, they're protected from that, especially the wind of Amalek. Amalek is a certain coldness and cynicism, a shekarcha to Judaism. But there are Jews that for whatever reason it is, they're not inside that protective cloud. They right now are not uh, living life in accordance with the way Torah would tell them to live life. And that's why Amalek, remember Amalek has a numerical value, suffix, doubt. That's why the doubts and, uh, and, um, and uh, skepticism can have an attachment to them and they can entertain in their minds doubts and, 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 and skepticism about Hashem's ability, about belief in Hashem. And this leads them to be to cool down and to be perhaps even cynical about holiness. So a person may think that if I'm a Jew who's inside the cloud, why would I go and try and help a Jew who's got himself ejected from the cloud? Uh, that Jew has, has, has gone beyond the pale. He's, he's done stuff that he's allowed himself to be ejected from the cloud of the protective cloud of Hashem's mitzvahs and Torah and, and Jew, Judaism. So the guy sitting in the cloud has to go and endanger himself to go protect the guy who has been ejected from the cloud. I understand that if there's some Jews in the cloud, that they do generally learn Torah and do mitzvahs, but they have some issues and they need protection. Or even a simple guy, a woodchopper, a, a water carrier, a water drawer. You know, they're not granted for the leadership to go and be busy with those kind of lower level um, uh, 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 Jews that are engaged on a lower level, that can be a demotion of sorts. That can be perhaps annoying in a sense. Well, we understand why that would be something that you would pursue, something that you would say has intrinsic value. It's important. You need to do it. But here we're talking about somebody who's earned himself the ejection from the tent, from the, from the cloud. Why would you tell somebody who's in the cloud that he has to go and put forth effort and perhaps even endanger himself to go to deal and to and to, and to and to bring near the one who's outside the cloud. You know what? I'll think about the guy, maybe in the cloud, I'll study more Torah, I'll pray for him, but to go and fight on his behalf, to leave the, the, the walls of the study hall, the walls of the prayer hall, and go out and, 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 and engage the enemy because this Jew finds himself perhaps even of his own choice, outside the cloud of glory, in a place where there's no place which is devoid of God-fearingness. Sorry, that's not, that, 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 there's no room for that. doesn't make sense. Especially if you're talking, let's say, the person we're talking to is somebody who's, the Torah is his sole occupation. He's such a holy person. It's not really possible these days. But let's say it could be that, you know, this, this person is fully, fully occupied in the world of Torah. And you're telling him, that um, that it's not enough that he's studying Torah for himself. He's got to go out and reach out to people that are also ejected from outside of the cloud to protect them from the cynicism, the skepticism of the Amalek world in which they live, which may be trying to pull them away totally from any last vestiges of their faith. The answer is yes. Look, we're saying by the first battle, they left Egypt. There's a teaching for us. When Amalek came and he started up with the Jews that were ex expelled from the cloud, even though it was by their fault because they had entertained and, 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 and voiced doubts in God, the Jews that were in the cloud needed to go and fight on their behalf and protect them. Not just this, but who were the ones who had to go out and fight? 
the pious ones, the ones that were God-fearing, that were fear, fearful of sin, they have the power to be able to go and battle against Amalek. And who has to be leading the battle? Yoshua. Yoshua was told, go and choose people and leave the protective cloud of glory and fight Amalek. Yoshua was somebody who never left the tent of Moshe. He was full-time occupied in, 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 in connection to Torah and connection to Moshe. He had to go do the lead the battle. And the Torah says more than that. We even hold Moshe to task. Who's, he's really leading the battle anyway. He, he, um, he um, appoints Yoshua. He appoints a good agent. Yeshua takes him over in the end after 120 years. And he should lead the battle. And he's leading the battle. Moshe Rabbeinu is not uh, you know, at home doing his own thing. He's up there on the mountain. He's praying. He's leading with his inspiration. His hands are up there inspiring the Jews. He's fasting. And yet, and he, he, he did achieve the victory in the end. Nonetheless, we're saying, Hashem tells him, really, you should have gone yourself. You should have engaged yourself personally to go out of the cloud and to engage personally in that battle to help save those Jews your brethren, even though they had earned themselves to be ejected. So here's the teaching even to somebody who's indeed a great person in terms of the leadership, in his leadership of Jewish people. It's not enough to just participate physically in the battle of Amalek that's taking place in every generation. It's not enough to say some Tehillim, to pray that Jews should come back to their Judaism. Even though, yes, for sure you have to pray, that's very, very important. It's even not enough that you should appoint people to go on your behalf to go and try and reach out to Jews that have lost or or or, or been left the protective cloud of glory of, of glory of Torah mitzvahs. But you have to go out yourself to protect those Jews. And through this kind of behavior where you don't make any, where you don't have any cheshbonis, you don't have any um, any rationalizations or calculations about what makes sense to do, even if they're holiness, thinking about what makes more sense from a perspective of holiness, but rather, you know that there's a battle and you go out and you wipe out the remembrance of Amalek, go out and save those that need to be saved, so then Hashem also acts reciprocally in the same way. If you try and wipe out Amalek personally, the way you do it, Hashem says, because there's two psukim. One pasuk is, one instruction is the Jewish people should wipe out Amalek. The other instruction is Hashem says, I will wipe out Amalek. How does that work? So there's obviously a symbiosis. At some stage, the Jewish people have to try and wipe them out. In the end, Hashem takes away the whole concept of Amalek, the whole concept of negativity and of opposition to Hashem. And when Shiach comes, there's no more opposition. Everything is just um, Hashem's glory. And um, then Hashem will also jump over the calculations. What calculations do we want him to rearrange the calculations of when Mashiach is supposed to come. Like he did in Mitzrayim. He took us out early because he reformulated the calculation. He wanted to reformulate the calculation now also. Whenever he's supposed to come, he should come even quicker. And then we know at that time, there'll be, he says, Hashem Shalim, Hashem, Hashem's name will be complete. Hashem's throne will be complete, which says, Tila Molik is wiped out. Those things are challenged. And this should be Bekar of Mamish speedily in our days. Bagolid Didan. As, as, uh, very, very close. Uh, very soon. Bagolid Didan in our times. So here we have the message of jumping into the fray and getting involved beyond rationalizations.